Are you guys familiar with uh, Pastor Rick Warren? Yeah, he pastors a church out in California, and he's written several books. One of the probably the most famous is The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, but it was like six years ago that uh, he and his wife, they lost their 27-year-old son uh, who took his own life. Uh, and after long bouts of depression and mental illness, took his own life. And, and people ask him often, and his wife, so how, did you, how did you get through that? And how are you getting through that? How do you actually survive something like that? And he said, it's simple. Easter. And this is what he says. He said, you see, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday was the day of suffering and pain and agony. Saturday was the day of doubt and confusion and misery. But Easter, that Sunday, was the day of hope and joy and victory. And here's the fact of life. You will face these three days over and over and over in your lifetime. And when you do, you'll find yourself asking, as I did, three fundamental questions. Number one, what do I do in my days of pain? Two, how do I get through my days of doubt and confusion? And three, how do I get to the days of joy and victory? The answer is Easter. The answer is Easter. Now, some of you are looking at me kind of confused because you're like, this is Advent. And that's true, this is Advent. But I would argue that we can't sing joy to the world, truly sing joy to the world, without Easter. See, without Easter, Christmas is just a nice story. Christmas is a story about this young Jewish man who lived a short life and taught really good things, but then he died. It's a nice story. Easter makes it the greatest story. Easter says there's hope. Easter says there's reason to sing joy to the world. Christmas makes no sense without Easter. But here's the thing. Easter's not possible without Christmas. Which reminds us, we should always be reminded, we can never truly celebrate either holiday without the other. You can't celebrate Easter without Christmas, and you can't celebrate Christmas without Easter. Both are necessary to truly celebrate the other. So as we get ready to enter into this Advent season, this season of waiting, this season of expectation, we know there's more to come. We know the joy of Easter. And so Advent is a time where we look forward to Jesus coming again, as he said he would, because he has risen, and he says that he's coming again. And so Advent is a time of looking forward. But Advent is also a time of looking back to his first coming, when Jesus came as a little baby in Bethlehem. So in Advent, we look forward by looking back. Now, those of you that have maybe never heard of Advent, that you're sitting there going, I'm supposed to know what Advent sounds like or what Advent is, let me explain to you what Advent truly is. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. 
It really means about we're expecting, we're waiting for something to come, and we're excited about something that's coming. And originally in the early church, in about the 4th or 5th century, it had really nothing to do with Christmas. It had to do with this 40-day period that led up to Epiphany, kind of like Lent is to us today. A day of, of a time of fasting and prayer and penance. And that day on Epiphany is when new Christians would be baptized. Epiphany is the day that they celebrate incarnation of Christ in the, in the child as the magi show up. It's also a time to remember Christ's own baptism and his miracle at Cana. That's what Epiphany was, and that's when they baptized, and Advent was really waiting for this day to celebrate. But then about the 6th century, the Roman church changed that, and they started observing Advent, looking forward to Christ's second coming, not his coming in, in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem. It wasn't until the, like the Middle Ages that that changed, where it wasn't just a looking forward to Christ's second coming, but a looking back and remembering his first coming. And in doing so, there's some significance there because, as I said, we look forward by looking back. We can see Jesus at work in the past and can trust that he's working in the future. Advent is a time over four weeks, the four weekends that lead up to Christmas. And they're typified typically by these four words. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And they're represented by these candles. Each of these candles have a, have a name. This first candle, this hope candle, is the prophecy candle. Where we take time to look back at where Jesus was foretold in the Old Testament. And typically, on Prophecy Weekend, we read from the prophet Isaiah, as you heard read earlier. But typically, the prophecy we read is from Isaiah 9, where it talks about people walking in the land of darkness have seen a great light. The people that are living in darkness, light has dawned. Sort of signifying so that when we start lighting the candles every week, we light a different candle. More light is illuminates the truth around us. The second candle, this peace candle, is called the Bethlehem candle. The third candle, the candle of joy, is the shepherd candle. And the fourth candle, the candle of love, is called the angel candle. That's Advent. And so this Advent season, we're going to teach through each one of these words. And as we teach through each one of these words, we're going to highlight one of the four mission partners that we as a church have throughout the world. This morning, we're going to talk about Ninos con Valor. We'll hear a little bit more about them later. But as we light this hope candle this morning, I have a question for you. Is there such thing as hope? Well, maybe, how about, let me ask it this way. Are you hopeful this Christmas season? Do you have hope? When you look at the circumstances around you, when you look at the poverty in the world, when you look at the political scene in the United States alone, are you hopeful things are going to get better? The word hope is defined this way. It's an expectation or belief in the fulfillment of something desired. When you read that, does, is there a certainty in that? Or do you feel like, well, maybe that's the desired outcome? Not certain that that will happen. Here's one of the other uh, explanations. It says, the want something to happen. That's hope. 
wanting something to happen. More of just like, I hope I get an A on that test. Right? I hope I get that job. I hope it doesn't snow before they get my snowblower fixed. It's kind of like a wishing, right? There's just this optimism. I'm hopeful. I wish this happens. I'm not quite certain it will happen, but I'm hopeful. At least it's better than being pessimistic, right? I'm hopeful. But that's kind of our modern-day understanding of hope. It's kind of circumstance-driven. When we look around the situation in the world, we're kind of, if you're, you have to admit, right? It's, it seems hopeless. It's like, is it ever going to end? Will these hearings ever end? And some people look at that and say, yeah, no, it's never going to end. You just got to suck it up, buttercup. That's the way of the world. You know, you got to bull your neck. You got to gird your loins. You got to do all these things because life is hard. There's really no hope in this world. Hope comes after. It's the afterlife. That's when things get better. Here, it's just hard. And hope, it's an illusion. And the sooner you get that understanding, the happier you'll be. You control your own hope. Why? Because you're the one that caused the problem in the first place, and you're the one that can fix it. If we just get the right person into the right office at the right time, things will get better. But how's that worked out? And all we need to do is look around. All we need to do is peer into just the, the recent past. And you have to come to the conclusion that that's not reality. That there's no hope found there, which has led some to believe that it's all an illusion. There's no hope anywhere. This is it. You die and it's over. Life is hopeless. But that's really no way to live. I read an article recently that said we can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four hours or four minutes without air, but we can't live four seconds without hope. We can see it, but we just can't make it. So is there such thing as hope, a certain hope, not just a wishful thinking, not just dictated by the good circumstances, but in the middle of the storm, is there hope? Can there be hope? And when we look to the scriptures, when we look to what God's word says, and we ask this question, the resounding answer is yes. Absolutely yes. In the Old Testament, there are two words most commonly translated hope. And the first one is this word, yahal. Can you say that with me? Yahal. You need to clear your throat, just say, yahal. Right, it's a great word for that. Yahal is hope. With that word, the understanding is a waiting with confident expectation. Not just a wishing, but confidently waiting with expectation for this to happen. That is what hope means. The other word in the Old Testament is this word, kavah. With kavah, it's a little different. Kavah is this confident waiting, but there's an eagerness to the waiting. There's an eagerness in the expectation. Here's the difference. You buy a present at Christmas. Some of you have already done that, right? You did that back in January when they were on sale. You, you buy a Christmas present knowing, confident, that when your loved one opens it, they're going to love it. 
because they've told you they wanted it. And so you're confident, you're yahal, that they're going to love it. That's your hope. You're confident. Here's kavah. I can't wait for them to open it because I know they're going to love it. I got my camera ready. They're going to be so excited. I know they're going to love it. There's this eager expectation and hope, a confident knowing they're going to love it. And I can't wait. In fact, that's why I give presents before Christmas because I can't wait to see the expression on their face. Those are the two most common uses of hope in the Old Testament. There's this confident eager anticipation, expecting something to happen. Confidently, not wishful thinking. Confident waiting. That's the hope that we see. And it's not dependent upon the circumstance because we see God's people exhibiting this kind of hope throughout the Old Testament. In times of exile, in times of slavery, we see some in God's kingdom very hopeful waiting very eagerly, very patiently for God to work. Why are they so eager? Because they trust in God as they wait on him. We see that in the Psalms. David writes in Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. I yahal for the Lord, my soul yahals, and in his word I kavah. I am confidently eager as I wait for the Lord because I know that he will show up. Why? Because his word tells me so. The psalmist also writes this, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? What do I kavah? My hope is in you. My yachal is in you. See, hope, the biblical understanding of hope isn't wishful thinking. It's a confident, eager expectation, not in a set of circumstances, but in a person. Hope resides in God. That's why they waited eagerly, confidently, because they trusted in the Lord. What is it they wait in? They wait in faith. What is faith? It's confidence in what we yahal for. And assurance about what we do not see. They were confident that God would do what God said he would do, that he would bring about this nation, that he would fulfill his covenant, even though they didn't see it. In Hebrews 11, that's what they're commended for, is this faith this confident waiting, even though they didn't get what they deserved, what they were promised, they saw it from afar. They hoped in God. Why? Because God is the most trustworthy of all. And when God speaks, it happens. Maybe not in our time, but God works. And we're called to hope in him and in his word. In all circumstances, hope is not dependent upon our circumstances. Our hope is in the Lord. And so as we light the hope candle, as we talk about prophecy, we're going to turn to the prophet Isaiah. 
There's no more faithful prophet. Isaiah, called to be a prophet, to to speak God's word, to speak on God's behalf to the children of Israel, to warn them of their their ways and, and to say, you need to turn back to the Lord because if you don't, God will use countries like Assyria and Babylon and take you off into exile to wake you up. To wake you up. And so Isaiah is faithful. And he speaks the word of the Lord over and over and over and over again for his entire life. Over 60 years, Isaiah prophesies to both the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah in the hope that they would listen and heed his advice. But he knew better. See, back in chapter 6, when God commissions Isaiah, After he cleanses Isaiah's lips, Isaiah's eager to serve the Lord. And the Lord says, who shall we send? And Isaiah jumps up and says, send me, send me, send me. I want to go. I want to go. And he's like, okay, Isaiah, here's what you're going to do. You're going to preach to these people. You're going to preach to them, and you're going to teach them my truth. And everything I say to you, you're going to tell them. But here's the catch. No one's going to listen to you. They're going to hear you, but they're not going to perceive you. They're going to see it, and they're going to ignore you. And Isaiah's thinking, I should have read the fine print, right? I should have read before I jumped up. And so he says to the Lord, he says, okay, all right, all right. How long? And God says, the rest of your life. The rest of your life. You're going to teach people what I tell you to teach, what, what I tell you to say, and no one is going to listen to you. But take hope, because there's a seed in the stump. Take hope, because one day, there will be people who will heed your word. Not in your lifetime, but in lifetimes to come, there will be faithful men and women who will eagerly wait and hope in the Lord and trust in his word. One day, Isaiah, people will listen. One day. And so Isaiah remains hopeful that God will keep his word and God keeps his word. About 150 years after Isaiah dies, God keeps his word. And it was in that time that Isaiah had started writing chapter 40. See, Isaiah was long gone at that point, but he's writing in chapter 40 about that time and 150 years in the future. And this is what he says to those people. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Why will all this happen? Because God has said so. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, there's hope. And there's hope. And he calls out to this people in this time and says, 
comfort. There's hope. In the midst of your exile, in the midst of the most horrible life, there's hope because God is still God. And he is still speaking and he still sees you and he still cares for you and you will return into the land. And here's what he says. Make straight in the desert. Prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight. Now he's not saying get out your square and make these straight paths. He's talking about a spiritual preparation, the spiritual preparation of the people to repent, to make straight, to be honest, and say, we have not waited eagerly. We have not waited with great expectation. We have failed you, but it's an honesty before God, preparing our hearts for God to work, not thinking that we can make our own path, but that we need God again to make a way for us. That's Isaiah's word to these people, that God is still working. God will prepare a way for you back, which is exactly what he does. He raises up King Cyrus in Persia, and Persia comes in and destroys Babylon. And it was King Cyrus that sent the Jews back to Jerusalem to reconstruct the second temple, just like Jeremiah prophesied that he would. God kept his word. And the people came back to Jerusalem and they reconstructed the temple and they praised God. And it went on like that forever. No, it didn't. Because they grumbled and they doubted. And they did not wait well. They did not hope well. They did not trust in the Lord. And so again, Israel is sent into captivity, and again, other nations rule over them because they cannot wait and trust in the Lord. And about 500 or so years later, a young Jewish boy is born in Jerusalem. And he, as he grows, he grows wild, and he lives out in, in the in the wilderness, and he's eating bugs like locusts, and he's eating, he's drinking honey, and he's just crazy looking. And he's preaching this message of repentance to prepare a way to make straight. And people are excited, and they're wondering, who is this guy? And so they send people out into the wilderness to ask him, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you, are you the Messiah? And, and, and he says, no. John the Baptist says, no. He says, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And their ears had to just like, like do this. Like, oh my gosh, I heard those words before. Because they'd memorized those words. And they're like, could it be? Could it be God is, is working? Could it be the Messiah is coming? And they're eager. Now they're eager. They're, they're like, I can't wait. And so what do they do? They start thinking what is it going to be like when the Messiah shows up? And he look at the Romans and go, you're going to be sorry when the Messiah shows up. Because when he shows up, your time is over. It's kind of like when you break a lamp and your older brother says, wait till dad gets home. Because when dad gets home, you're really going to get it. Right? And then dad gets home and he doesn't do anything. And you're like, really? That's not right. That's not fair. And then Jesus shows up, but he's preaching mercy and forgiveness and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And they're going, that's not fair. That's not what we expected. See, they weren't waiting for God to work. 
They'd made their own plans. They had their own expectations, and they expected the Messiah to show up and for Israel to rule here and now. But that wasn't God's plan. See, they weren't waiting. They weren't making straight away for the Lord. They were making their own way. And God didn't do what they wanted to do. So what did they do? Well, they, got, they killed the guy. That's the only thing you can do because he's not doing what we want him to do. He cannot be the Messiah, even though, even though the prophet Isaiah says in 53, clear as day, exactly what he's, what's going to happen to him, exactly how he's going to die. But that's not what they wanted. They did not wait in the Lord. They did not hope in the Lord. Their heads were down in their circumstance, trying to make their own way. Seventy years later or so, 70 A.D., they tried to make their own way again, and the Roman Empire came, laid siege to the temple, and raised it to the ground. Hopeless. Because they did not wait for the Lord. They did not want what the Lord wanted. John, or Paul tells us, he says, all of these things were written. All of the things in this book were written so that you and I could learn from their mistakes. So that you and I could learn our behavior, our tendencies, because they are us. Right? You look at them and say, how could you spend all those years in exile and then God rescue you and then you go back to your old ways? How could you do something like that? All we need to do is look in the mirror. When we look at the circumstances around us and we're in the midst of storms and some of the life's worst things and we are grumpy and we're, we're, we're angry and it hurts, yes, it hurts, but there's hope in the midst of the storm. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ is in whom we hope. Because he is God, and God is always faithful. And we can learn, and we can be encouraged, and we can be reminded that our hope isn't just for this world. Paul says, if that's all your hope resides in is in this world, then you should be pitied. We should be pitied if this is where we intend for our hope to exist. That's exactly what happened in that first century. It still goes on today. Our hope is in our own making. We're going to make it right. We're going to make sure that we take care of things. I'll provide my own hope, thank you. And Paul says, that's, that's no way to live. Because here's the thing. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Easter happened. And it's no longer just about this life. But because Jesus has lived, because Jesus lives, you will live. You who believe in him. You too shall live. And that hope is certain. Why? Because God has spoken. He has given you faith. He has declared you righteous. He has locked your inheritance away in heaven. 
Peter says, it's secure there. We have certain hope, and we can eagerly await what God has in store. But it's more than that. That hope impacts how we live now. Because of what God has done, because of the certain hope that we have in a life everlasting, we don't have to continue to strive after trying to create our own hope, trying to avoid that, trying to find heaven here on earth. God is creating that for us. We can hope in him. And because of what he's done, Paul goes on to say, because of everything that God has done, be steadfast and immovable. Don't be swayed by the circumstances. Don't be swayed by public opinion. Be steadfast, resolute, wait in the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the meantime, in the long wait, between now and when Jesus comes again, we can work in the Lord. We can love our neighbor as ourselves. We can pray for our enemies. We can give our resources for the work of the Lord. We can trust knowing that God will use that because God promises to be at work. When did I see you hungry? When did I see you in need? When did I see you in prison? Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. We can trust that when we provide that hope to the world, when we follow after the Lord's work, he is working as he's promised to do, as he still promises to do today. Watch this. Hey there, I'm Tyson. And I'm Carolina, and we're really excited to introduce you to Bolivia and our ministry with Niños con Valor. First of all, we need to introduce you to our family. Located in the heart of South America, Bolivia is a country notable for its incredible natural diversity. From low in the humid Amazon jungle, to the fruitful valleys, up into the mountain peaks of the Andes, the landscapes and the plant and animal life are simply breathtaking. Bolivia is equally diverse in its ethnicity, with 36 recognized ethnic groups. This diversity provides for a wide assortment of cultural expression as seen in the colorful and varied traditional dress and dance of the different regions. In the middle of Bolivia, 8,400 feet above sea level, rests the valley of Cochabamba. Home to nearly 1.3 million residents, the metropolitan area of Cochabamba is one of the fastest growing and modernizing regions in the country. Amid this beauty and diversity hidden beneath what on the surface is a family-centric culture lies a very different dark reality. With some of the most appalling domestic violence statistics in the Western Hemisphere, Bolivia's children suffer violence and neglect to degrees that are hard to comprehend. And with low government investment in social services, the suffering is often sustained with little hope for a brighter future. 
It is in this context that the ministry of Ninos con Valor has been sharing Christ's love and seeking God's justice in the lives of some of Bolivia's most marginalized children since 2005. Our boys and girls come from broken homes, some have lost their parents, while most have been rescued from situations of extreme neglect and abuse. We are creating for them a new family, a space of acceptance and integration, where they can realize their dreams and, most importantly, recuperate the childhood and joy they've lost. We believe in quality over quantity and treat each child as the unique, precious gift he or she is. Our focus is on transforming lives one child at a time. And this is taking place through our four main programs. Corazón del Pastor, which means Shepherd's Heart, and Pedacito de Cielo, which means Little Piece of Heaven, are our girls' and boys' residential homes. Here, up to 20 girls and 20 boys are able to grow up in a family-style environment where they are loved by an incredible team of faithful staff and discover the depth of God's love for them through devotions and participation in their local church community, La Trinidad. Our homes are unique in Bolivia as they focus on integrating children living with special medical and mental health needs. A third of our children are living with HIV, while another third requires other specialized care. We provide supplementary support to ensure our children are able to reach their potential academically and offer diverse extracurricular activities so that they can discover their interests and natural gifts. For teens struggling with serious emotional or behavior disorders, we have Bolivia's only residential therapy program focused on providing this population with guidance to redirect their anger and rebellion into more healthy, positive decisions and actions. Caminos Abiertos al Cambio, or Open Roads to Change, provides our teens with a strict routine, community service opportunities, and daily group and individual therapy sessions. In the two years it's been functioning, this program has demonstrated the success of its model, gaining the interest of the courts, social services, and many other organizations working with teens. Our fourth program was designed to assist older teens with a difficult transition into adulthood. Sendero de Esperanza, which means Path of Hope, is a three-stage program that prepares our children, starting at 12 years old, for the increasing responsibility they must assume as they get older. When they turn 16, our teens move into our pre-transition apartment. Then at 18, they participate in a four-year program which includes a transition home, academic scholarships, and finally external support as they launch out on their own. This program is crucial, as it is not culturally normal for young adults to live on their own at 18. And as it is one of the only few transition programs in Cochabamba, we also receive young adults leaving two other residential programs in the city. Our ministry is made possible thanks to church partners like Trinity. Your mission support and the support of child sponsors from your congregation are having an incredible impact in the lives of our children. We hope that in the next couple of years we'll have the opportunity to host a team from Trinity here in Cochabamba and that you'll be able to meet our amazing kids in person. Thanks for helping us transform lives one child at a time. Lisa. Brandon. Ariana. Esteban. Noemi. Eduardo. Please. Alejandro. Mariana. Alex, Daniel. Alejandro. Alexander. Leslie. Matías. Lisbeth. William. María Guadalupe. Machi. 
their hope all we need to do is look on the faces of those young children you heard it described as a place of hopelessness but yet god brings hope in the face of jesus christ in the face of tyson and his wife and in, in your faces we bring hope into that area and god continues to bring hope into this world now using people of hope people who trust in jesus in the middle of storms in the middle of horrific circumstances in the middle of what seems to be a hopeless situation we know god is still at work and so in this season of advent we look forward into a future into this country but we also look back trusting that god has always been at work he's always kept his word therefore as we look forward we can trust and wait that he will always keep his word we can hope in the lord now and always